Good morning, everyone. My name's Tim, and I have the joy of being able to serve here and hang out with you all on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. If you've got a Bible with you, open up to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we're going to be working through the book of 1 Peter now for about 15 weeks. All right, God's Word, yeah, love it. 1 Peter. While you're turning there, maybe, maybe you don't have a Bible with you in the Pew Bible if you look, uh, page 1014. Looks like everyone's there. If you got it, say you got it. All right, it sounds good. All right, 1986 was a pretty important year. Anyone got any guesses why? Mm, we're getting close. Huh? I was born. This is a good, this is a good thing. Yes. 1986, what else happened in the history of the world? Chernobyl was big. Karen disagrees with me. The Nintendo, the Nintendo company um, launched... Perhaps um, one of the most important flagship games of the Nintendo company, uh, and it was The Legend of Zelda. Do you remember it? You know the story about it, don't you? It's about a little boy named Link. He goes to defend the kingdom of Hyrule. He's going to protect and save the princess Zelda from the evil wizard Ganon, right? We... We've all played the, the game in all of its 8-bit glory on, on a box that you had to constantly hit to try to get the thing to work. And at the very beginning of the, of the game, though, you meet, you meet Link, you take Link into this cave, and you think that he's going to be fighting a whole bunch of enemies. And he doesn't. Instead, he meets who is affectionately called the Old Man. Um, he has a white beard. He's bald. Um, it, it could have been any of you in here today with a white beard and, and bald. It, it, it looked kind of like this. And he's telling him the story. And then at the very end of it, he tells him, it's dangerous to go alone, Link. I want you to take this. And he gives him a sword to be able to accomplish the mission. The mission was to save Princess Zelda, the, the prized leader of the kingdom of Hyrule. And if you beat the game, he does do that. He does that with the very thing that the old man gives him. You and I both know that real life is not, just not it's not saving princesses. Um, I've, I've yet to fight a dragon yet. That's, that's on my bucket list. Um, Real life, real life is giving your kids a bath. Um, real life is, is dealing with how to, how to deal with loss of loved ones. Real life is paying your taxes. Does anyone enjoy, honestly, truly, at the end of the day, paying their taxes? No. 
The book that we're looking at, though, is addressed to a group of people that dwell in a very different kingdom than their actual home. It's actually addressed to a group of people that are exiles. Um, Not only have they been moved from their previous home, Jerusalem, but when you read the rest of the story of the New Testament, you find that they, along with us, our home isn't of this world. We belong to the kingdom of God. We're celestial citizens. And the occasion of Peter writing this to his friends, to the elect exiles of the dispersion, was that bad times were coming. Persecution was coming. They had already experienced it when they were removed from Jerusalem and they were pushed out into the rest of the Asian Minor. But it was written probably around mid-60s which means that the emperor at the time was Nero. And if you know anything about this guy, you know that he's not a good guy, and he's especially not a good guy to Christians. Legend goes that when Rome was burning, um, he was playing his fiddle at night. Now, they didn't have fiddles back then, right? But what we do know about him is is actually factually historical. The scapegoat for Rome igniting on fire were Christians. This is what's actually said about him from Tacitus, the the Roman historian. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Covered with the skins of beasts, They were torn by dogs and perished. Or they were nailed to crosses. Or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired as he was walking around his garden at night. He lit Christians on fire so that he can be safe. Bad times were coming for God's people. And there are a ton of themes that you can read throughout the book of 1 Peter. There's certainly an element of suffering, how to suffer well. Bad times come for us all. How can we be obedient to Jesus in the midst of them? Or how can you be a good husband or a good wife? There there are certainly elements about order throughout the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter touches on a lot of stuff throughout life because it's a very painfully practical book. The thrust of it, though, is found in chapter 1, later on in chapter 1. You shall be holy as I am holy. If we were to say a different word for the, the, the theme of the book, we would call it resistance. What does humble, quiet holiness look like in the face of an evil empire or in the face of being a good dad? It looks like resisting our own flesh. It looks like simple, gentle obedience to Jesus. It looks like holiness. And he starts at the very beginning, verses 1 and 2. This is what it looks like to be a person of of resistance. 
And so that's what we're going to be looking at today, verses 1 and 2. So if you're able to, would you stand out of reverence for God's word? This is what God's word says to us today. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you and you and you. This is God's word to us this morning. You can be seated. So who is the resistance? Who is it that quietly demonstrates gentle holiness in a normal everyday life? Peter gives six different um, identifications This is who they actually are in real human history. And if you claim Jesus as Savior and Lord, this is you too. What does he say first? That they are elect. That's a scary word already up front, ain't it? Elect. When you think of the word elect, what comes to mind? Right, there, there ain't a lot of different, like, we, there isn't a range of what it could possibly mean, right? And then it gets quiet. He says that they're the elect. We're going to get more to that in just a moment. But he says that they are the elect exiles. Just heard just a moment ago that these are most likely Jewish Christians who were living in Jerusalem at the time, they felt the pain of the dispersion. And so from Jerusalem, they're moved now over to the Asia Minor so that they can be safe and worship Jesus now. What they're going to find out is that persecution sweeps like wildfire, at least in the urban areas, at least in the cities. And so they're taking refuge, more or less, in the Asia Minor. Hundreds of thousands of square miles. These chosen picks, select people are exiles. This is familiar language to Jewish people who because of sin in the past, they've broken God's covenant. If they obey, it will go well for them in the land. And if they don't, they'll be kicked out of it. Exile sounds like it's something that they've done wrong. It's a result of something that they've done wrong. But we wander through this life. I've driven through multiple counties to get to work from where I once lived. When I go home tonight, 180 Bonaire Drive, you're welcome. Um, That's where I'm going to lay my head to rest where my wife is going to be, probably, hopefully. That's where my kids play. We, we work and play around here. This is where a lot of our life happens. But for God's people, this isn't where, where life ultimately lands. Their home was across the Jordan as they were walking through the desert. 
our home ultimately, finally, when we cross the great chasm of death, is at home with Jesus, our Savior and Master and Lord. So it's not just that they are exiles in terms of location, though. They look very, very different. They believe very different things. They act differently. They dress differently than the people that are around them. And we could probably feel something like this today. Have you ever been around people that move from one country to another? And sometimes, like, the language that they speak is very different. The dress that they wear is very different. How is... We, we might say... There, that there is something different. Maybe Peter is actually spiritually profiling people here. There's certainly a big difference as far as culture is concerned, living in this area as opposed to southern Indiana. I hear a lot more Spanish around here. I see a lot more melanin. I hear a lot of different types of music here. Not only are we just not at home here, though. Friends, you and I look very different. Peter's friends look very different from the people that they lived next to. Their values were very different. The things that they believed, the things that drove them to work, the things that made them tick, the reason why they were faithful to their families. They were exiles. How comfortable are you here? Is this home for you? Even more than that, how different do you look than the people around you today? I'm not talking about the kind of stuff that you wear. Like that, that's easy to do. That's easy to change. I'm talking about like core beliefs at the end of the day, what you believe to be true about humanity and how they're made in the image of God and they're worth dignity. They have inherent dignity and they have incredible value or what you believe to be true about God and his word. Are you peculiar in comparison to other people? They were elect exiles. But that's not all they were. Skip on down a little bit more. What, what's he say? Verse 2, according to foreknowledge. Yet another fun word today, friends. We're hitting all the big ones today. What does it mean to foreknow a thing? When you and I want to read or, or, or know the end of a story or a book, what do you and I do? We, some of us, you're me, I just read the end. Some of us might begin at the very beginning and work through the end. God is very different than you and me. Would you agree with that? How different is he though? God is so incredibly different than you and me. He guides the stories that we read he guides the story that you and I are in. He writes it from beginning to end. Every word 
on every page, in every chapter, in every story that's represented here. You remember last week, God loves us not because of anything that's inherently found in us. God doesn't rescue us because of anything that we've done for him. Instead, God loves us simply because he loves us. And when he's saying this to his friends, when Peter is saying this to people that he loves, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, not of any authority that he has on his own, but as someone that received authority from Jesus, teaching his friends, you are elect and exiles, and because of the foreknowledge of God, he's rescued you. Being elect and chosen, like that, that kind of language in our Western American context, it kind of grates some people, doesn't it? What do you mean that I can't choose God on my own? That's basically kind of the, the, the conversation that I've had in the past. I don't know if you've wrestled with this or not. One of the biggest things that we value as Americans is our, is our ability to choose and our freedom of choice. It's not true freedom unless I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. An election and foreknowledge, it flies in the face of that. How many of you have flown on a plane in the past two years? Yeah, okay, a few people. Wonderful. Question. Um, do you know of any other way in which people, human beings, are able to fly? We need those kinds of things to get us from like point A to point B. You following me so far? Just because I want to be able to fly from here to Fort Lauderdale, Florida in August doesn't mean that I'm actually able to unless I have the capacity to do that. I don't have wings to be able to launch me into the stratosphere, in other words. My ability speaks to the amount of freedom that I have. You follow me? He's talking about something here where in my own sin sickness, I can't choose to follow God on my own. I need him to act on my behalf. I need him to step in and rescue me. This is the scary part about this election and predestination language, though. And that is sometimes when some of us that are fearful and we don't know how to relate to God, um, it feels very, I guess I just need to grovel at his feet. And the, and, the, and the truth of the word, it ends up weighing us down. That's an improper, unhelpful way of looking at the truth of Scripture here when he's addressing it to God's own people. This isn't meant to weigh you down. The truth of this Scripture is meant to love you to the sky. God loves you in such a way, church, 
that he chose to display love to you way, way before mommy or daddy ever, ever loved you. God chose to love you. God chose to make you his. This doesn't land all the time on American so again. In our Western context, it feels weird almost, doesn't it? There was a Presbyterian group of missionaries. They were going to Seoul, South Korea, and they were going to serve the the, the so-called lowest caste of their society. They're going to work with prostitutes. And they've been working hard. They've been giving the gospel away, scattering seed, whatever you want to call it, right? Free grace. Jesus saves. Come trust Jesus. And there was something in their heart because of their culture, very shame and honor oriented, if they're, if they're shamed in their own culture, it's hard, for them, it's hard for them to be welcomed back in. It's hard for them to imagine how they can respond to gospel grace by reaching out to the hand of Jesus. Things started to change for them when they started talking about a passage like this. God's choosing. King Jesus, who is sovereign over all creation, foreknows and welcomes people of all stripes, all backgrounds to his kingdom. But he did this even before they were born. It was a king who did that on their behalf. Not just sinners limping to a savior, but Jesus took the initiative first. passage is not for us to get cute with theological jargon. It's just not. And we can wrestle with the fact that you and I are still responsible for our sin. It doesn't negate the fact that we're responsible for things that we do. Peter pastorally is telling people who are about to experience really bad stuff that this stuff isn't happening as a result of you not belonging to God anymore. When the worst kinds of stuff comes your way, you're still mine. Because I planned on you being mine in the first place. Election and foreknowledge reflects God's power. That's true. And it reflects God's love for us as well. Go down, though. According to foreknowledge, but also in the sanctification of the Spirit. This is a noun. He's indicating that there's a process going on here that's under the ownership of the Spirit. It's not your responsibility alone. This is something that we can partake in with the Spirit, but the Spirit guides it. Notice how all three members of the Trinity have been mentioned now in this passage, Peter is an apostle of Jesus according to the foreknowledge of God, presumably by the Father, and now the Spirit's engaged in it as well, who is leading you to practice holiness. How do we see that? What's the next thing? He says that this is for obedience to Jesus Christ. 
Did you know that there was a goal in mind when God rescued you? That there was an aim in mind. God presumed, God wanted to do something in you and through you. What was it? It is to make you his. And through your life, you get to call other people to know the great God who rescues and saves people for obedience to Jesus. I posted something on Facebook earlier this week about expectations. And granted, there wasn't a lot of explanation about it. But generally stated, Kerry Newhoff, he's a, he's a pastor and um, a faithful brother who said that when expectations are, are, are basically communicated, people can conform to those expectations. Peter, all the way up front, he's laying out expectations for those that are elect exiles foreknown by God. That you're to be sanctified, the Spirit is sanctifying you, and it's for obedience to Jesus. So then the question becomes, does this mean that every single person that claims the name of Jesus and is actually rescued from their sin will work to the end of obeying Jesus in their life? Yes. Sanctification is the process of bringing every area of my life under the lordship of Jesus. Sanctification is the process of moving gradually from unbelief in him to believing him in every area of my life. To be rescued by Jesus is to say that I want to be in compliance with what his kingdom looks like here and now. So you might feel like that's not grace. That's not free grace. That's a very high expectation for people, isn't it? All manner of life under the lordship of Jesus. Has anyone done that yet? Any, any, no one? Right. I'm, I'm right here. I'm here to give the gospel away to people, not just in public fashion, but also privately as well. I fail in this. There was a woman that came here five minutes late for the food pantry just this past Wednesday and I was frantic and wondering how the heck can I open this door and try to get her some goods she's never been here before and I'm wandering around looking for stuff just wondering how to get into the door I could have asked Mark any number of people that was a failure on my part I didn't open the door I didn't get her what she needed I'm grateful for a couple of people that were there that were willing to go in. I'm saved to obey my Lord and Master. 
And I don't do this well all the time. In private and public. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and for the sprinkling of His blood. Thank God for the sprinkling of His blood. You might want to go to, this immediately means forgiveness of sin. And that's a good instinct to have because we're gospel people. And that's what frees people. That's what gives forgiveness. But that's not what he's talking about here. Throughout this book, Peter keeps calling back to Exodus over and again. This is a, this is a callback to Exodus 24. When God summons Israel before Mount Sinai, he gives them the covenant. Remember, if you do well and obey, you'll stay in the land. And if you don't, you'll be pushed out. After hearing all of the words, what does Israel say? We hear, O Lord, and we obey. Do you know what happens next? Moses guts an animal, sacrifices it, and begins flicking blood on people. It's a very different experience at SeaWorld, isn't it? Why is he flicking blood on them, though? Because blood seals the deal. They make a promise to God. We receive what, you, what you've told us. Old covenant. Based upon your grace, absolutely, but we have to hold on. When we go to the new covenant, though, there's still an expectation for us to be sanctified and made holy and to obey Jesus. But the new covenant isn't based on my performance and my obedience. It's based upon Jesus' blood and obedience. And so these new people, these exiles, it, very far from home, have received grace from him as he splatters his blood on them, forever sealing them as his. This is you. Jesus has forever secured you. When you fail, Jesus still secures you. Hear it from Peter, who's a turncoat in the kingdom who sold Jesus out, not for silver, but to save his own skin. He says that Jesus still has you. Jesus still has you. And so then difficult days are coming. How can you be holy today? Practicing holiness will not be a priority unless we believe that God is holy and therefore makes us holy. We will not practice repentance unless we believe that God's way is the absolute best way. We will not obey Jesus unless we believe that Jesus is worth following. We will not be spirit-empowered if we are hopeless Peter's telling us who we are so that we can do what 
the God of the gospel calls us to. There is grace and peace for you, and may it be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, you use a guy like Peter who has foot and mouth syndrome preached incredible sermons and acts who's frail and flawed throughout his ministry and ends his life um, according to him as the highest honor is being crucified upside down. There ain't no way that we can do that. Being faithful through failure other than a deep abiding recognition of who we are, whose we are, and why we are his. Jesus, won't you help us and remind us again and again and again of what you've done and how you've done it. lead a light of quiet, humble obedience. Help us resist this present evil age. Would you do this? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.